welcome to Dragon Bites, the paediatric podcast aimed at paediatric trainees or anyone interested in child health. I'm Stacey Harris, one of the co-founders of Dragon Bites and a paediatric trainee here in Wales. Apologies for my voice, I seem to have caught one of the respiratory viruses which comes as an occupational hazard. Or maybe it's just too much podcasting. This week we have another Reflections podcast which has kindly been submitted by one of the trainees here in Wales. I'm so pleased to be able to share with you some more top tips, wisdom and experience on reflections from two colleagues which I feel privileged to have around me. I'll read the reflection in a rather husky voice and then hand over to Asim, the other co-founder of Dragon Bites, to discuss around the reflection with Yvette Kluter and Lizzie Nickerson. I saw a teenager with her parents in the community paediatrics clinic. They had been seen previously for some concerns with social communication that had come out over the past few years. School performance had also deteriorated compared to her twin sister. The family had been seen a few months previously and the possibility for further referral for ASD, Autistic Spectrum Disorder, diagnosis was discussed and the family wanted more time to think about it. I discussed the history with the patient and her parents and then went on to talk about the possibility that we could refer for an ASD assessment. I discussed at length with the patient and her parents about what ASD is, what it means and what effect, both positive and negative, it may have on her adult life. I also discussed that she may go for an assessment but then be deemed not to have ASD. I also discussed the fact that once the diagnostic label had been given, it could not be withdrawn if she no longer wished to have it. Describe the learning points from the case. I found this discussion very challenging as it was mainly dealing with uncertainty. The young person was uncertain what ASD was and what positive and negative effects it would have on her. Her parents were worried that it may have a negative impact on her adolescent and adult life, but that it may open doors for further support for her. It was also challenging as the mother at one point asked me to tell her what they should do, and I couldn't give a very straight answer. I felt that as the patient was now 16, It was for her to choose whether she wanted to pursue this path. She was already planning to leave school, so additional support would be negligible for her upcoming exams. Following our consultation, the parents thanked me for my time and the advice I'd offered. I was a little surprised, as I did not feel that I had been very helpful, and I felt ill-equipped to guide them either towards or away from a referral for ASD assessment. How might you change your practice in the future? This case highlighted to me the importance of ensuring that the child or young person and their family are fully informed about any complex diagnostic process that may have both positive and negative impact on their life and the psychological impact of being labelled with a condition. It made clear to me that there is often no rush towards these processes and there is usually time for people to take a step back 
and really consider what they want to do before making a decision. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dragon Bites. It's Adam here, one of the one of the presenters, and I've been joined today by um, Dr. Yvette Kota. Hi, I'm Yvette, and she's one of the general paediatricians who works in Neville Hall Hospital. That's correct. And Dr. Lizzie Nickerson. Hi, I'm Lizzie. <laughs> Hi, um, and you're one of our community paediatricians. Yes. Right, lovely. Um, so we're here today to chat about one of the reflections we've had sent in from one of our trainees. I thought we'd start off about discussing, you know, what was good about how that reflection was written. Um, do you mind if we start with yourself, Lizzie? Yeah, of course. So um, I thought it was a really nice narrative, actually, very um, nice to read, like a, a story, um, and it felt very naturally flowing and very interesting as well. I think anybody who read that would, it would cause a lot of thoughts to go through their mind and, and reflect themselves. So, and I think that's one of the things that in the um, ARCP panel makes things interesting because we're reading through lots and lots of assessments mm -hmm. and something like that can really show us that that's really been thinking a lot about the case. Um, I thought it was really good as well that the trainee was thinking about um, competence, so appraisal competence, although um, they didn't you know, say appraisal competence, yeah. that was obviously what was going through their mind thinking about the fact that the, the young person is 16 um, and remembering how important the young person's opinion is which is often can be overlooked Absolutely. easily yeah. um, uh, and also thinking about um, the, the patient's future you know talking about she'd explored the fact that the patient wanted to leave school already and so was presumably thinking about going to work and, and that was good that she'd explored that yeah yeah what, what I liked about it is I think it's really good when a reflection picks up on some important issues and there's two really important things here that are very generalizable and those are uncertainty in medicine because mm. I think that's probably one of our biggest challenges in medicine is, is often where someone starts getting to middle grade and then to consultant really struggles in, in having to live with sometimes you just don't know and, and you, you think you're floundering in the dark and you have to find a way to move forward mm. so I think the learning from this can be generalizable to almost any situation not just this particular case and the other one was um guiding patients so the same thing Lizzie picked on there is that that fine balance between telling a patient what to do and giving them all their information to help them make their decision and and there isn't a right or wrong there is there I mean sometimes you kind of have to push the patient towards something but you need to help give them all the information and some patients really want you to make that decision you know, the, the best I can do is that what I tend to do in that situation is say, well, if it was my child, this is what I would do. Or I tell them a story of where it has worked or hasn't worked. If, if I was in this particular one, I would have used a personal example because my son has, has Asperger's. Mm. And when he had the diagnosis, it's so good to know, mommy, I'm not weird. I'm just wired differently. So I think for my son, it meant a great deal to have the diagnosis. But then you have to give them the counter argument, which is what here, um, and obviously this is more your field of expertise, but it can cause problems as well, having that label, mm -hmm. if it's not something you actually want to have. So um, I thought those were two of the, about the choice of the reflection by good, and then just the, 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 the way it's reflected using the sort of, um, the what, so what now, what kind of yeah. approach, so, so dealing with a nice summary of what happened there. And then um, why it's important, what their feelings were, what the implications are for the family, and a bit of an action plan as to, to what they're going to do. So that's what overall I'm seeing as a reflection. Mm. I think it's interesting what you said about um, talking about personal examples because 
I think when you first start as a trainee, you want to be very evidence-based and factual because that's how we're taught at medical school. But actually, as time goes on and, and you get more experience with patients, you realise that the vast majority of patients and their families aren't really interested in evidence-based. Yeah. They want to know anecdotes, they want to know about patients you've seen. And and I think that takes a different spin on it and you have to, you know, read that and change the way that, that you speak with those families. Absolutely. I think it's really I mean a simple example is GAN syndrome. I think as you continue developing as a consultant, the more life experience you have, the more stories you have to tell. Mm. And you know, I have examples of people who are adults who are now with Down syndrome who are collecting money for patients or when a baby is there and they sort of think oh what's their life going to be like I can tell them about children who've been in my club group and, and various things and it's just it's the personal story rather than just the facts from from what the textbooks say do health I guess that that's something that's going to come with age and experience and just being a parent I think has made a massive difference I don't know if you found that Lizzie but being a parent sometimes just being able to relate to the patients and say well yeah yeah I have that problem as a parent even though I'm a doctor I know that's really hard for you yeah, I think obviously not that you know quite recently become a parent. So I remember before I had children feeling well, you know, I feel like I'm just just as good a doctor. And I don't think it's changed me being a better doctor, but I think from the patient's point of view, they often say to you, "Have you got children?" And that used to frustrate me before I had children because I used to think, "Well, why are you asking me that?" Because that's irrelevant. That doesn't change, you know, how good or bad I am as a pediatrician. But I, but now being able to say yes, and I've been here in this situation, mm. it it does help actually. <laughs> so the life experience kind of makes you more relatable, I suppose, doesn't it? Because it makes you as a doctor seem more human. Yes, I, I guess that. Right, and I guess if you don't have children, you know, because I'm not saying you've got to have children to be a good pediatrician. You can talk about your siblings or your friends' children or yeah. nephews, nieces. You can talk about anyone. I think it's just you, you've got to read the patient as well. It's, it's a real skill to know what that patient wants. Some patients want the evidence and mm. if someone's sceptical you kind of blast them with the evidence, don't you? Mm. Whereas some people just want it as a human to know what your your thoughts and feelings are about about it. Yeah, I mean it's interesting all this stuff about life experience because one of the impressions I got, I don't know who wrote this reflection, but I got the impression this was a very middle grade sort of reflection. Mm -hmm. So this is probably when trainees are first having to traverse that that area of uncertainty that you mentioned earlier um, where there probably isn't any evidence to say having a label attached to a patient is any better or worse than not having a label attached in which case the only way you can fill in this blank for a patient is probably through your both clinical and personal experiences absolutely yeah i mean it, it's also finding out what the parents agenda is i think it's, it's good, a good idea whatever the patients come in with is what are they worried about mm. if it's coming with a headache has grandpa just died from a brain tumour or why is it that they are really worried? You know, why have they come here? Have school sent them as a problem with school? Mm. Is she finding problems with socialising? Why do they want the diagnosis? What are their hopes from getting the diagnosis? Because that, that then you can help lead them the right way as well, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, uh, probably more of a personal opinion, I have a, have a big issue with the word label being yeah. used about um, autism spectrum disorder because uh, you know, we're obviously we're going into other areas now as a reflection, yeah, but uh, I I think if somebody came and they had all the diagnostic criteria for diabetes or asthma, nobody would even be discussing whether or not you give the diagnosis. And I realise I'm coming from a very well, community pediatric. Yeah, well, I, I'm a mother of a child with yeah. that so I very much don't like it being called a label either. Yeah. So. 
I mean, I think, you know, I think it's one thing whether um, the family wants to then have that on the letter and take that on board and have it in their medical records. But I don't think you can argue either way if the symptomatology is there. You know, mm. they, they either have a diagnosis or they don't. If they want yeah. to carry that with them through their life, that's a different debate. Mm. But um, so, you know, no criticism of this trainee because everybody uses that terminology. Yeah. But I think it is, I think you need to be careful using that terminology about neurodevelopmental conditions. So I've never, it never even occurred to me before that using the term label might in itself be inappropriate because if you've got the criteria, you've got the diagnosis and there's no, there's no ifs, ands or buts about it. Well, uh, uh, one, one thing I'd like to come back to later is how you tackle these sorts of things, but just to bring us back to the reflection briefly um, and, and the contents and, and how it was written. Were, were, did you, either of you have any thoughts about what could be done to have, um, to perhaps improve the reflection or, or another way that it could have been tackled that would have been nice to have seen in, in say, an ARTP panel? I mean, obviously, as a previous um, college student training programme director, I've done a load of ARTP panels and probably looked at hundreds, probably actually thousands of reflections. Mm. And something to make them stand out is, is usually quite a good thing, but I really think it's important for people's reflections to grow as they become more senior. Mm. So, you know, if an F1 or F2 and F3 one is, is reflecting, you probably would expect a lot of it being clinical learning. Yeah. And, oh, I saw a patient with asthma, I don't really know what to do with asthma, I've read the guidelines, yeah. and, and this is what I'm going to do. But still make it generalizable then by saying, well, um, you know, next time before I see a patient, I might look at a guideline before going in. So it's not just, well, I've learned about asthma, because you can't reflect about every condition you've learned about. Mm. But when you're getting to middle grade, particularly if you're getting to nearly consultant level, mm. when you're reflecting, it's about um, really generalising what you've what, what you've reflected on there and thinking about system changes. So in this case, I guess it's not a particular system change they're going to do, but it's maybe identifying that dealing with uncertainty is a problem and, and is this something that they can help other trainees with? Is there some reading material they can bring in or is it something to discuss with the education lead to think about do they need more time on that in training and simulation so it's trying to maybe just push it beyond just i had this experience and i didn't know what to do but i think just from my tpt sort of hat from previously is don't say i'm going to do x or y and mm. then not evidence that because if you have 10 different reflections like oh, i'm going to do a quality improvement project i'm going to do this i'm going to do that and then you can't find that they've done that then it's lip service yeah. But a really good reflection is one that then has a reflection, they do something and then they reflect again on how that has changed and I think that just that, that epitomises what reflection is all about, which is learning. Yeah, um, I think sort of uh, in that vein as well, it was it would have been nice to see um, some reference to looking into what support there is for the family, so mm. what literature, maybe they looked at the National Autistic Society website or ASD Info Wales or um, looking at actually what diagnostic services there are for 16 year olds because mm. it gets quite complicated and different depending on where the trainee was at the time. So um, obviously I don't know how senior this trainee was but I'd certainly expect that at a registrar level yeah. and to be looking into that so that next time the trainee was faced with a situation they would have a whole host of resources to provide the patient with and to reference. Mm. And then following on from that I suppose they could then when next faced with it, say, actually this time I had a very similar experience to this reflection I wrote two months ago, except I felt more armed and prepared than evidence that they've grown as a trainee. Absolutely, because I think it's a good idea when you are reflecting, when you're going through your learning points to in your head divide it up, 
Mm. So case specific, so I've gone to the asthma guideline or I've looked up how to do, um, what to do about diagnosing autism and what support there is. So that's mm. very much clinical learning about that case. Yeah. And then general, generalizable learning, dealing with uncertainty or guiding parents and what guidelines there might be, what you've looked about that. Mm. That's not specific to this case, but, but specific to the issues that were brought up here. And then particularly more senior system learning changing and stopping this happening again for someone else or for yourself. Yeah. I think thinking was in those three ways with every reflection you do, because there's usually something in each of those, even if it's just, well, actually, I'm probably too junior to change anything here, yeah. but maybe I'll speak to my consultant. Yeah. And actually having said that, sorry, I'm sort of, but having said that about um, the consult, speaking to your consultant, if you actually look through the GMC guidelines, it actually suggests that you're meant to discuss the cases you're going to reflect with with your educational supervisor mm. to really show learning. So that's not always going to work with the dynamic you have with your supervisor, but it's just a reminder for trainees that the supervisor is meant to be there as part of their job to lead you to improve your reflection. So if you're someone that doesn't naturally reflect and struggles with it, it's a fair expectation of your educational supervisor to spend time with you to yeah. go through your reflections and advise on how to improve them. I suppose that's where that's taking reflection to, to the next level, isn't it? So a lot of people mm -hmm. find it fairly easy to sit down and you know re essentially have a chat about something that's happened but on paper mm. um but the difficult thing is then making that constructive and what are you going to do about you know improving your practice from that mm. um and that when i when you know when i do reflections i find it quite useful to do the chat bit while i'm quite emotive about it because then all the things that are going through my head actually genuinely come down on paper yeah. and then when i've sort of you know been away from the the situation for a couple of days then come to it quite constructively with what am I going to do about it because yeah. I think it can be hard especially if you're reflecting on an emotive situation mm -hmm. you know like a resuscitation mm -hmm. to then think constructively at that time when you're, you're feeling quite emotive oh absolutely and that's actually one of the points I wrote down I'm so glad you've mentioned it as well because I think it's so important and, and I've seen both extremes quite often where people are way too emotive when they're writing their reflection because clearly they've come home from a really bad day whether that was a recess or a fight with a colleague or whatever and the emotion really comes out way too clearly in the reflection and, and you sometimes say things you probably shouldn't say but equally it can be very cold and boring if, if there's none of your emotion there because we're voyeurs aren't we <laughs> and you like to see you like to see and hear and really imagine the situation when someone's describing it if yeah. it's too bland it's really hard whereas that's what's really good here she the trainees really described very well what they were feeling and why they were uncomfortable and, and I think that really shows that they have gone and thought about it it's something that's important to them it's not just oh gosh I've got to reflect I'm going to find something to write about it's actually something that they were really feeling about so I often say just write it all down in anger but not on your portfolio and then edit it and take it back and put it on the portfolio so this is the angry email that absolutely. you don't send absolutely i think i've said that yeah. before I'm yeah. <laughs> and i think other areas for improvement um it, it's a lovely uh, case to reflect on asd in girls mm. which often presents so differently mm. so you know that would be an idea for areas that the trainees may be going to go and read about if they don't already um, know about that i thought it was interesting the trainees use of the word a straight answer give a straight answer yeah. to the parents. I know I know what they meant. Yeah. Um but uh but as we've already said really, you know, it's frequently asked and I think people have would have different opinions if you asked, you know, 
uh, a whole host of, of consultants about what the right thing to do is, whether you say, yes, I think you should get a diagnosis or, or no, I think you shouldn't. And mm. I, I think that I find that still very difficult mm. when patients put you on the spot. But yeah. you, you said you'd use your own personal experiences to sort of... Yeah, but I'd also counter that, that I wasn't, I, I, I never want them to feel that they haven't made the final decision. Mm. But I think it's just, sometimes they really just want you to say something. And then I would just say, well, if it was my child, I would do this. In this case, I could actually say mm. I did do it because it was my child. Yeah. But in some cases, you know, you can't. I would just say, well, if, if, if I had, you know, and, and you bring it, you bring it back that way. But you're not actually telling them what to do. Mm. You're just saying what you would do if it was your child. So, so to me, that's all, all. You know, I guess equally, if you're not pediatric, if, if it's my parent or my spouse, you could you can always say what you would do in that situation. So to me, that's the I guess cop out of not saying what do this. Yeah. But it's this is what I would do. But I think it's making sure that they, they have all the information and the other options so, so it is an informed decision. You never want a patient to not make an informed decision. But having said that, there's a group of patients that don't want to make an informed decision. They really yeah. don't want a lot of the information. They're very resistant because they don't want to hear some of those things. Mm. And knowing what you can get away with not telling them what they act, what actually ethically would be wrong not to tell them. Yeah, it is hard. And I, I think, but I think if you don't give a straight answer in, the, in the, those words then um, you, it just leads to more frustration and, and so you know you can try and say oh well I can't you know I can't make that decision for you but this is this and this is that and I and I found if I've tried that in consultations it just leads to a very frustrated family mm. so um, you know I think you have to you have to try and give a straight answer as much as you yeah. can um, and the other thing I was just going to mention was that uh, the trainer said about um, there being no rush in these situations and again I think that's arguable yeah. um, uh, something that the trainee could have reflected on was the past actually what's happened to this um, young girl you know she's obviously um, got further away from her twin I think it mentioned you know and mm. so how long actually have, have the symptomatology of ASD been present and actually you know, would she be staying in education if it had been recognised earlier? Would she be mm. in a different sort of uh, emotional and mental um, place if it had been diagnosed earlier? So, so the no rush argument is you can look at it either way. And certainly from my point of view, I would say actually most of the patients I see have been waiting so long for a diagnosis, mm. and it's it's so apparent that actually there is a rush, and I, I do feel a sense of needing to you know gather everything together because I think historically there was often an attitude of wait and watch and wait and watch mm. for many years yeah um which now that we can reflect on that we can see that actually that's been to the detriment of many families and children that's really interesting because I got the impression this family's been sort of struggling with this decision for a while from your experiences how would you you know try and get them to come to a decision a bit sooner rather than later? Well, I think, I think as we've already said, you know, the, the families do put a lot of weight on the way you present things. And, mm. and we are almost like a journalist, really, putting spin on things. And, and we can, it, we, you know, whether we like it or not, we can definitely persuade patients one way or another. Mm. And we will do that whether we realise or not by our past experiences. So I know that I will be... Um, uh, singing the praises really of having a diagnosis of ASD because of so many cases that I've seen where I've seen the benefits mm. um, and so so that I know that my way of speaking with a patient will be very different to somebody who, who maybe hasn't seen that many ASDs 
um, because they might have a very different opinion of the diagnosis. Oh, to me, I guess the only negative there potentially is in having a diagnosis is when people put everything down to that diagnosis in future then mm. and don't think there's just natural personality traits or, or other reasons why someone's doing something. Yeah. And so, so for both that about the support you have afterwards, you know, you're not getting up late in the morning isn't because you have autism, it's because you're a teenager <laughs> or whatever else there might be. So that's getting you know, I know once again the interpersonal skills my son is you know, we have these conversations about he'll say, Oh, it's because I've got autism. I say, Well actually no, that isn't <laughs> autism, that's just you. <laughs> <laughs> um I think sometimes people might not push themselves as far, do as much because they, they use autism as a reason why they can't. But actually I've never known anyone be upset. They're upset at the time of the diagnosis, but they never feel I wish I hadn't been given a diagnosis. I've never met anyone I don't know if you've had patients who've had a lot more experience than you with autism. Mm. I've never come across a patient who says, I wish we weren't given a diagnosis. No, I think I could prob I can count on one hand how many times a parent had been resistant to the diagnosis that I would probably remember those because the with the school is worried about those children and that's why we've you know, we've gone through that process because uh, everyone around the child is very concerned and can see um, all the symptomatology but for whatever reason the parent's not quite ready to see that at that time and then obviously you have to work with the parents but the, the vast majority of times when you give the diagnosis there's a there are tears of relief because the parents you know no, um, nobody knows a child like the mother and they've known you know really since the beginning that there's something a bit different about their child and they're just relieved um, to finally hear that in, in those in those words but what I always say when I give the diagnosis is it doesn't change, you know, the child in front of you. So, you know, little Matthew, who you're, you're diagnosing, he is still Matthew. It's just that we're describing the way Matthew is. Mm. And it's not that suddenly you give the diagnosis and that patient changes into mm. somebody else. Yeah. And uh, that, that seems to help people, you know, that it's not nothing's changed. It's just describing what you already knew was going on with your child. Um, so I suppose the the other thing is, did you did either of you ha um, have any thoughts about? It? Well, I mean, we've already discussed quite a few issues around what was raised during the during the reflection. Do you ha have any other thoughts about interesting aspects of this reflection? So, uh, just going back to the fact that this is a girl with undiagnosed ASD, mm -hmm. um, just another sort of uh, thing that would have been interesting to discuss is the mental health presentation. So mm -hmm. we know that uh, there are a lot of girls with undiagnosed ASD who present acutely to PCD or to, to CAU with deliberate self-harm or um, suicide attempts or depression, anxiety. Mm -hmm. We know that those are all very common presentations of undiagnosed ASD. So, you know, it would be important to consider that uh, in this girl because she, she's high risk. And I think often we, um, when we're thinking of the acute service and the community service, we forget that there's a huge impact if we don't recognise yeah. it in the community then they're going to be seen acutely and and uh, fill up our wards. Yeah. That's, that's it, I'm currently working in PCD, it's, it's, I don't think I've ever looked at a case of um, deliberate self-harm or you know um, suicidal attempts and, and it, you know, I don't think the thought has ever occurred to me that is this uh, a possible case of undiagnosed ASD so in, in cases like that, something that might be useful for, for people on an acute take, what other, diff other hallmarks might you be looking for that you think 
actually maybe I should be referring this on to community paediatrics. Yeah, I think mm. all trainees, I mean, ASD is a very common diagnosis, so I think mm. um, all trainees should be aware of the diagnostic criteria. Mm. And I think, you know, the way it is now with the dyad is, is quite simple to remember, so it's not, you know, you don't have to remember too many criteria, mm. but it's, uh, it's, uh, it's more difficult in girls because they're so good at masking um, so it is more difficult when you've got 10 minutes to clerk them but I think you know if they're having difficulties in school if they're having lots of issues with friends so bullying or mum and dad are always being called into school for reasons then just you I'm sure you would look into that mm. anyway because yeah. you'd be thinking well what's going on what is that a trigger for this and then just having it in the back of your mind is you know does this girl have social communication difficulties is she routine bound does she have any rituals um but it is harder you know i'm not, I'm yeah. not it does take longer in girls especially teenage girls because they've had a long time to learn how to mask and how to um portray themselves as uh, excellent at social communication and interaction yeah. and often they are they come to us as girls who are who the teachers don't like they're unpopular they're seen as um, troublemakers um, because they've got attitude and that, that's the description that you often get so you have to sort of delve through all of that and, and get underneath and of course if, mm. if there is ASD it will have been present since they were toddlers yeah. at the very earliest so you need to delve into that early history and, and that's often what gives it away there. Oh that's really helpful actually yeah um, thinking of it that way around because normally we, I, I, I normally approach these things from the other perspective so they've got a diagnosis and is that leading to their behaviour not oh they've done this should have we missed something in in the past Gen uh, though I'm sure if the clues were there I'd have explored it I feel like I need to defend my own practice <laughs> <laughs> I'm, sure I'm sure I would have explored it if the clues were there but um but now I think I'll be looking for those clues that little bit more yeah, I mean, yeah. I, it's in, it's incredibly difficult in ED with all the pressures, but certainly mm. when I did six months of CAMS, yeah. I was astonished by, I would say, 90% of the pace, new patients that we saw for query depression, query anxiety, walked in the room, and it was clearly apparent that they had undiagnosed ASD, and then they would get referred to the neurodevelopmental service. Wow. Um, and, you know, speaking to the consultants I worked with at the time, they said, yeah, absolutely, it's very, very common. you do actually you have to reflect about ev every serious event 
yeah, if, if there's a significant event, if there's been a, a critical incident done about it, you need to say that on your form R, as you, I'm sure you're all aware. Mm. And then um, to be able to be ticked off at your ARPP for your validation, there has to be a reflection on that. So you do need to reflect on it and you know, just a little tip again, make it very easy for the for the consultants to find when they're doing the ARPP is, is that you have reflected on that. But it, it is a fine balance there and I, I, I can understand people's nervousness mm. about putting those cases down there. But if you keep to a very minimum on the facts, don't don't use it as a way to criticise or to defend yourself, but really do talk about the learning that you've made from it. So that that helps make you more safe. And just obviously from here, never use any names. Most people are very aware not to use patient names, but you do every talk with people using their colleagues' names. So it's just avoiding that as well. Mm. And um, keeping it to not being a, it's not a, a case description. And, and I find myself sometimes reading through the whole thing because I'm, you just get pulled into it. As a doctor, we love to hear about patients. You know, that's yeah. why we're doctors. We love hearing the whole detail. But that's not what reflection is about. The reflection is about the learning. So the, the, the summary needs to be just enough for everyone to know where we are and, and what we, where the learning is going to come from. But really, the emphasis needs to be on, on what you've learned, how you're going to change your, your practice from there. Um, I, I used to find it quite useful to... Um, it just literally on my phone notes, you know, if I if I'd been involved in an interesting case or you know a discussion with a colleague, literally just write a note down on my phone there and then because I knew realistically, you know, with shifts and everything, it probably wouldn't be for a couple of weeks before I could actually sit down and and write that up. So and then it when I did finally get time to write on my portfolio. Um, I couldn't remember any of the interesting things that had happened. So, you know, just jotting it down there and then, so you've got a list of, of reflections. I used to find that useful. That is really good, yeah. Because often you forget by the time, you know, by the time you actually get to a computer and have half a day where you can sit down and start updating your portfolio, you've forgotten the half dozen things you've had over the last week or so that you could have reflected about. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay, so the reflection doesn't go away. Yeah. And when you're a consultant, you still have to do it as part of our marker validation. Mm. You need to reflect so that the earlier you learn how to reflect well, the better it is for you in the long term. Yeah. I think one thing that, that was demonstrated really well here was that there was a sort of singular narrative that they'd picked for this reflection. You know, because every time you have an incident or, or a meeting with a patient, you've probably got dozens of different tributaries and ideas about things you could be talking about. And uh, I've read reflections previously where they've kind of talked about a dozen different things, but very superficially. Um, whereas this one's gone, no, I want to discuss very specifically the uncertainty about whether someone should or should not make a decision and how much I should contribute towards that. That, that was a very straight channel through the, every aspect. And I think that's really good. That'd be a really good thing for trainees to to work on if they haven't done previously. I think that is really good. And then, and you know, just if, if you have looked things up after it, put that link there, mm. show that you actually have gone and done some reading. It just helps show that, you, that you're not just thinking about it, but you're actually trying to base it on evidence as well. So yeah. I think putting the evidence down there, so I've looked at the, you know, the help that is for autism, or I've looked on the um, guidance on, on uncertainty, you know, but, but just, just put down anything you have looked at, just to show. And it's, it's useful for you as well when you go back and look at your reflections. Mm. I, yeah, I, I talk to people about consultant interviews, and you know one of the things that's very useful there is actually have reflections available to yourself to read through before your interview, so that any you can you can use those examples mm. as um 
as the inevitable and, and, and something you started as something started off yeah. as something that went well or didn't go well something you're proud of something you are set about so that if, if you have those reflections you have a really good baseline to go on forward with so um you know but, but having the evidence there just helps you know be able to check that as well again if you want to before you, you yeah. bring that up as an that's another great tip I mean, i've never thought of using my reflections as a sort of database for future discussions i just put them on there it's like oh this is something that in some way change the way I do things mm-hmm. but actually as a sort of database of oh, I'll come back to this this might be useful for me to think about later on. I would really will yeah it really really is because you need to have a whole cluster of things that you can use because mm. when I watch people interviews you sort of see them clutch the story start a story and then you can see them go oh god why have I chosen this story you know <laughs> it actually doesn't show me in the best light or, or I'm not really sure how I'm going to go with this to prove that mm. whereas if you've read through 20 or 30 or 40 of your reflections in the hour or two before your interview all of them all those stories are fresh in your mind you can really bring them out in so many different ways because someone's good at interviews every single question they'll bring something from their personal practice to show yeah and just having that there is really useful wow excellent fantastic good tip yeah we should tell me that before (laughs) (laughs) i had a question about child protection obviously and I mean, there were so many questions. I couldn't believe how enormous the panel was. But uh, I just froze on that question because even though I've seen thousands of child protection cases, I couldn't think of a really good one that you know gave that example. And mm-hmm. if I'd read through my reflections, it would have been there. But I've still got the job. Well, <laughs> I'm very pleased to have you. <laughs> um, the only other thing I just wanted yeah. to pick up because the trainee had said that you can't. She, uh, you can't withdraw a diagnosis once it's given and I just thought it's worth just yeah. reflecting on that because um, you can it can be withdrawn it isn't mm. that you know that's here yeah. forever but it is a difficult process to go through but mm. I don't think that should be a reason that people are then hesitant to go through the diagnostic process for fear of not being able to withdraw you know a diagnosis as we said at the beginning yeah. if the diagnostic criteria are there then they're there that's that, that's yet another really interesting point. I had, you know, now it seems so obvious now that you said it, but that that's probably that's really true, isn't it? You wouldn't think that way with any other diagnosis. No. If you initially thought someone diagnosed someone as having, a, a, perhaps a form of epilepsy, and then later on it turned out that it wasn't epilepsy, but ha- perhaps a metabolic condition, that wouldn't stop you then withdrawing. So there's no, withdrawing the diagnosis of epilepsy. So similarly here, yeah. If evidence changes in the future. You know, yeah. yeah, and I think you know now, now our diagnostic process is much more rigorous, and we're much more aware of the overlap with um, attachment difficulties and early developmental trauma. So hopefully, through that diagnostic process, those things would be picked out anyway. But uh, but certainly, I have been involved in cases where the diagnosis has been changed or withdrawn. And uh, while it's not just a, a visit to the clinic, mm. it's it is possible to do. So sure. I don't think it should be a fear factor in the process. Another really good learning point for us all, well for me anyway. Um, and any other thoughts? Yeah, I think the one thing I really liked was the little sentence was about saying, following our consultation, the parents thanked me for my time and the advice I'd offered. I was a little surprised that it did not feel like being very helpful. And I think we find that so often. In the cases where you've broken your back and done so much, patients kind of will complain. <laughs> and then in cases where you almost you can hardly remember it, you get this lovely compliment or this lovely thank you. And just because you were a human for them, you were a person, you listened. Mm. In my clinic the other day, there was a couple of patients, I thought, well, I've just not really done anything 
you know, my mum could probably, my mum wasn't a doctor, my mum could probably just have sat there and had a nice little chat with you. Mm. And that's what I offered and that's what they needed at that point. They didn't need me to wave a magic medical wand. Mm. They needed someone to listen to their problems and give them some sound advice. Yeah. And it's often the patients that you do very little for, in your opinion, that actually, from the patient's perspective, you've done a lot and you've really helped them. Yeah. And so we mustn't underestimate how just being human can really help help our patients. And listening to their agenda, isn't mm. it? You know, it might not have been on our agenda that we've done things, but actually we've completely ticked off all, all the things on the patient's yeah. agenda. It goes right back to what you're taught in medical school, isn't it? Absolutely. About the two agendas. Yeah. <laughs> what are the um, right? ideas, concerns, concerns and expectations. Yeah. You know, so if, you know, if you find that out from the patient, you really are going to give them a good consult whether or not you feel that you've done the right thing. Yeah, it's also a really nice sentence to to let um you know the assessors know um that that this patient's getting nice feedback. Absolutely, because often <laughs> often it's quite hard to put that into your portfolio, mm, isn't it? Because yeah. it is just a phone call to say thanks or a, and you feel a bit arrogant putting down in your portfolio. Oh, I got a phone call today to say thank you. You know, yeah. uh, it's it's rare actually that patients write a letter that you can mm. scan in. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that, but I think it's really important to put that sentence in, and and you know they've done it in a very humble way, which is very yeah. sweet. But you know, it yeah. tells us tells a lot yeah. about that training. Yeah, absolutely. And and I I agree. I think we've all been in that situation where we've been, you know, pleasantly surprised that someone's taken away more from from a consultation than than we'd expected them to. Mm. Um, yeah. Anyway, I think that's a really sweet note to end end this chat on um, so um, thank you very much Yvette and thank you very much Lizzie. Wow thank you Yvette, Lizzie and Asim. It was a pleasure to listen to you all. I have learnt loads, picked up some really useful tips and have been inspired to write a reflection about reflecting now. Anyway join us next week for one of our revision podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and let others know about us and check out our website www.dragonbitespodcast.com. Thank you.